Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello again, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Ons. It's a real treat that you joined me on this little adventure. Thanks a bunch. This week, I'm talking to singer, songwriter, actor, jack of all trades, Declan Bennett, about his love for Ani DeFranco's highly acclaimed seventh studio album, Dilate. You may know Deck from his music, or from his time on EastEnders, if you are British, or from Rent, an American Idiot on Broadway, or Once in the West End. So many ways to know him, right? Now, this episode is a little different because... I'm part of the story. Dun-dun-dun! The hunter becomes the hunted. Or something. Deck and I dated a very long time ago when we were youths. A fact that we allude to, but are never explicit about in our chat, so I am being explicit about it right now. We also talk about a band that Deck was in when we met, but never mention its name. So for the sake of full transparency, it was a pop rock band called Point Break. I guess I've sucked all the mystery out of the interview, but it's very important to me that you have all the facts laid out in front of you all the time while you're listening to this podcast. You're welcome. So yeah, this is the first time that I've been involved in any of my guest stories about the art they love. It's kind of like Alfred Hitchcock doing a cameo in one of his own movies, right? I can hear you muttering to yourself, did he actually just compare himself to Alfred Hitchcock? Yes, motherfucker, I did. Deal with it. But I digress. It was really fun to chat to someone about a shared memory of consuming art together because, to me, art is best experienced with other people. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't like seeing movies or plays or TV shows or going to galleries on my own. I love doing that stuff by myself. What I mean is that sharing those experiences with other people, whether it's during the consumption of the art or after enhances that experience for me. As I've mentioned countless times on this podcast, I love helping other people to discover new art, and I love being turned on to new stuff by other people. But I also get tons of enjoyment from discussing art with other people. 
Sometimes I'll agree with the other person's opinion and we'll talk about our shared love for that artwork. Sometimes we'll disagree, but the experience of talking about how it affected us always helps to shape or solidify or even completely change my experience of the work. And the reverse is true too. Art affects my relationships. There are cultural touchstones throughout my life and they are inextricably linked in my mind with specific time periods and places and people. For example, my friend Molly gave me a copy of 1984 when I was 15 and it blew my tiny mind and pushed me towards a type of writing that I'd never experienced before. So when people talk about that book or about Orwell in general, I don't just think of this towering work of literature that's dominated huge chunks of our culture since its publication. I think of Molly reading it in my high school homeroom and asking her what it was. And then I also think about introducing my dad to Mary J. Blige's music around the same time and how on the days when he would drive me to school, we'd listen to her first album on a cassette when the signal from a radio station called KMOJ cut out. KMOJ was and still is this independent radio station in the Twin Cities that plays a lot of R&B and hip hop. And at the time it had a pretty weak signal because this is before digital radio, everybody. And there was a spot on the route to my school where a Christian radio station would break into KMOJ's broadcast, and that's when we would pop in What's the 411 or SWV or Al Green or Celia Cruz or whatever. So when I think of Mary J. Blige's music, there's a broader context to it, and it's a much more personal context. My relationship to her music is all tied up with my relationship with my dad and my friends and everything else that was going on in my life at that time. Art is the glue that binds together so many of the most important experiences in my life. These artworks act as signposts for my memories of the people I love. And it's such a comfort that I'll always have access to these artworks as a means of sparking those memories. Spark. Get it? Like the name of this podcast. Wow. What a tie-in. Way to bring it home, uns. High fives all around. All right, all right, all right. Let's move on. Here comes my chat with Declan Bennett about Ani DeFranco's Dilate. So, dilate, Ani DeFranco. Yes. Um, uh, the first question that I normally ask is, do you remember where you heard, found out about whatever you want to talk about the first time? And I, I'm sure that somebody amazing introduced you to it. <laughs> I was just going to say, it was like, um, I think you know exactly <laughs> the nucleus of this story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much do we want to get into that? So, I mean, how when did we we met each other in London? God, how long, I was nineteen, twenty, maybe. Mm-hmm. So it was like about eighteen years ago. Yeah. Ugh, ugh, God. Yeah, long time ago when I was living in St John's Wood, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so we met and um, we were hanging out as 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 boys do, <laughs> and uh, and that was I, I remember you. Because obviously you, I was in a band at the time, or I just left the band, I think, and uh, it was a very kind of pop-driven band, and and I'd started to listen to much more kind of female angsty Alanis Morissette, Tori Amos, Cheryl Crow kind of vibe, and I was really affected by that kind of music because I really liked how open these women were, and I guess as a gay man that had had a had a big impact on me, just that kind of emotional honesty that I identified with in these particularly in these female artists and and then we met and 
you obviously we'd obviously had conversations about that and the kind of music that I was into and the kind of music that I wanted to, to, to start writing and you said to me have you ever heard of Arnie DeFranco and I said no <laughs> and cut to you I think it was I think Dilate was the first did you give me the album maybe on CD or did you just you told me about I can't remember yeah, exactly man. what happened um I've actually got a feeling it was maybe Living in Clip that we listened to first, the live album. But but what I do remember specifically is you playing me Napoleon from Dilate. And I remember listening to Napoleon and thinking, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it just it absolutely blew my mind. And I, I'd never heard of Arnie DeFranco before. And I remember listening to it the first time. And it's so lovely, isn't it, when you've listened to a song for the first time that you've never heard before. And from the minute it starts to the minute it finishes, it just has you in its grip. Yeah, yeah. And that's what that song did to me. I loved its rawness and its authenticity and its boldness. And, I mean, the entire album, Dilate, has that vibe, doesn't it? It's the, the entire album is has that really intense delicacy to it. And it's got, it's a really open sounding album. And I love the, the way, I mean, Napoleon is just heard on electric guitar and bass and drums. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's been EQ'd and the way that it's been mixed, it's just, it's got this really big sound. And from that moment on, I was, I was obsessed with her, with that album. And I just became a, I the Franco freak. <laughs> The other thing that I think is really interesting in particular about Napoleon is that she she does this a lot with songs, but she's speaking directly to some person. It's like an audience of, of one. It's a conversation and she's saying, you know, talking through her relationship with this person who's like really obsessed with becoming famous or is yeah. at least like gets wrapped up in kind of the industry machine. But I think she's so good at making her songs sound conversational like this is you can you could hear the conversation that she's had with this person while you're listening to it but it's still a song like it rhymes it's uh, yeah their lyrics um but you can you feel like you're in the room while she's speaking to the person she's talking to absolutely and it was the first time that i ever experienced songs of such a poetic nature that still like you say managed to have these hooks and have these melodies yet whilst remaining essentially a spoken word piece mm-hmm. but it, she she just she managed to just find this really beautiful space between incredible songwriting incredible melody writing and like you said this conversational tone and she's just her use of metaphor is it's just so beautiful and and i love particularly with this song the way that that musically it sounds so angsty, it sounds so raw. And and some of the things that she's saying to this to this person are, are kind of harsh, but then there's some really caring and beautiful things that she says to this person as well. Mm-hmm. And but it, 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 the, the, the musically uh, supports that as well. You know, it gets into kind of like, and I guess that you that man and workers and all that, and the music really pulls back and it becomes this much more delicate. And then, but she wants, she drives the point home again and all the electric comes back in and it's great, man. I love mm, it. Yeah. And I was thinking, I just listened to it again a couple of times this week and that line towards the end of the song where, you know, the spoiler alert, the person she's talking to has had this like successful career and now it's kind of waning and uh, they're not getting the, the same attention from the record industry as they had been. And yeah. she's, you know, 
saying that this person has come to kind of cry on her shoulder and she's just like fuck off of all people yeah. this person who's known for being ultra independent <laughs> like refusing to let anyone have any control over her music starting her own record label distributing her own shit and all of that is it's five seconds of song but all of that information is conveyed in in that in, little condensed period yes yes she's she's very fucking clever at doing that she's very very clever at doing that and the nice thing about listening to artists like that is you just every single time you listen to one of those songs something else happens or you hear you hear another little thing that can be conveyed in a different way like all good writing you know what i mean it, it allows you despite the fact that she's kind of she doesn't name names but the fact when she's talking to this one person it's you know i i felt like there were conversations like that that i could have with somebody or that or that she could have with me and and i be that other person it's yeah it, it, it just it, it it creates all these worlds for me that i love nothing more than to just get lost in yeah and I can imagine that song in particular, you know, given the situation that you were in. At oh, time, God. Yeah, you know, completely. You Just coming out of a, yeah, you know, coming out of a two-year deal with Warner Music and, and making music I didn't really want to make. And and, and I remember going, to, when I left the band and, and our A&R guy saying, well, okay, so what do you, what, what, what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, well, I've, I've been writing this, my own music. And I remember playing it to him and <laughs> it was met with a bit of a like, yeah, that's that's cute, isn't it? <laughs> you you crack on with that sunshine, and 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 from that moment on, and and being introduced to Ari DeFranco, it felt like I was introduced to her at a very specific time in my life that then propelled me into into trying to emulate a similar career path. And from that moment on, from twenty years old up up until today, musically, you know, I've I've I never signed a deal, I never worked with a label. I'm now on my fifth album, sixth EP, uh, you know, not quite as prolific as Arlita Franco, but I guess we can't all be as prolific as her. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, give yourself a break. She's a fucking monster. Like, uh, yeah. you know, by the time Dilate came out, she'd already released like 10 albums in that decade or something. Just like, of course. Really pumping them out. What? She's a machine. Yeah. And also you have to look at those things and, and, in timelines as well don't you and you think well i guess when she released not so soft was the first one was that 1989 maybe 1990 uh, and she kind of i think it was 89 or 90 uh, um, please hold caller i'm just uh, verifying that information so yeah <laughs> uh, uh the self-titled album was the first one in 1990 1990 okay yes. So, but if you think in like 1990, I mean, you're talking pre Alanis Morissette, you're talking pre Tori Amos, I think, just about. And, you know, she was there, she'd moved to New York City and she was selling tapes out of our car and she was playing downtown, all these things and created this like anti folk movement. And people were so hungry for music back then. We consume it in so many different ways, but I can imagine a woman of her talent and of her ferocity gaining traction very very quickly because she was so fucking ballsy and at that time you know there was a there was a hungry crowd of people who were desperate to hear the kind of music that she was making yeah yeah and i think that is an interesting point part of it is like living in a time when you could only really buy music you know physical copies of music and mm. finding out about new music was a, a a different task it was like the internet when at least when Dilate came out was still kind of in its infancy and the idea of you know searching for music online really wasn't a thing so it was a much more 
organic real world process and like you know finding out music through people you know or maybe reading reviews in music magazines or something but um yeah yeah and just and the way that not only the way that we consume music at home but but the way that we consume live music which i think we still do now you know live music is is still incredibly popular and will continue to be but if you think like back in the 90s when it was the birth of cds but you were still kind of listening to cassettes and but but the quality of the of the the cd players or the cassette players that we were listening to music on was just a bit shit compared to now yeah. if you were back and listen to on uh, listen to an album or one of those systems you'd be like this sounds awful but at the time like it was like well this this is great this is what i have but that compared to going and seeing somebody live in 1999 it must have been mind-blowing to go and hear music live through speakers in a room of loads of people that's an entirely different experience to people sitting at home with their sonos bars everywhere been enveloped by music i'm sure there's probably you know some venues that wouldn't even sound as good as your own living room right now <laughs> yeah yeah and especially with someone like Annie franco her live shows were always equally if not more impressive than the recorded versions and you know just like notorious for having a fantastic crowd banter and just like chatting away and telling jokes and experimenting with her songs and doing you know versions that uh no one's ever heard before and and whatever she was great and it, it really inspired me as well to have faith that one person and a guitar can create something really huge i mean if if Ed Sheeran has proved to that to the world. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. not, you know, it is, um, it's, it's obviously a completely different artist, but it's somebody who has affected millions of people mm-hmm. because of his, the, because of his approach and his use of pedals and his beatboxing. And, you know, he again has proved it. it's like if you've got the wherewithal and you've got the audacity, you can absolutely conquer the world with just a guitar. And he's done it in one way, but the way that she's done it, I think, is just so has got so much integrity, and it's, it's just beautiful to go online and see her just still touring relentlessly all over the world mm-hmm. i just think her daughter must be like god my mom is a fucking badass yeah yeah <laughs> and also just you know starting something in such a small way it's like what you said that she moved to new york city from buffalo and she was like 18 or 19 and just really completely starting out on her own building up gig after gig slowly recording albums on her own distributing them herself doing basically everything like it mostly was just her and a a drummer for a long time yeah Um, and then now she has this label that she distributes other people's music she produces other people and it's like a little mini kind of indie empire and it's all from her alone (laughs) i mean that's incredible the fact that she's done all of that and then has she's like passing the baton on and going Mm -hmm. i've I've created this empire and i want it to support the very people that are starting out exactly in the way that she did what better way to kind of live your life and to create a a bit what a business model do you know what i mean it's not which is why i think she still thrives and, and still you know yeah, there's been some albums that I've listened to of hers and been like, all right, sweetheart, I don't really get this, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I I will continue to buy and listen to her music because I appreciate her and her entire ethos. Mm-hmm. And it's a really important lesson, I think, for artists everywhere and, just, and not artists, business models as well. It's like if you do the right thing and if you give back to the people that are giving to you, your power is limitless. 
She's pretty great. Yeah, I'm desperate. I've always wanted to go to, I mean, I've been to Buffalo, but I never, I've always wanted to go to the the church. You know, she's got that church where they do those gigs. Mm. I think it's, I don't know if they're off the Righteous Babe offices are there or I don't know. If she ever listens to this, Arnie, just give us a little invite, you know. <laughs> Does it, I think she lives in like New Orleans or somewhere now. I think so. Yeah, I think um, so. But whatever. I'm trying to find out if I if there's any information about that. It's not important. It's not important. It's not uh, important. <laughs> so, where, where, did, have you seen her live recently? It's been a long time. I think yeah. the probably, in all honesty, the last time I saw her live was probably with you, and that was like in mm, 2001, 2000, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Was that Shepherd's Bush we went to? Yeah, I think so. She had quite a big band with her, I think. Mm, yeah. And it was all the other, like, I started seeing her when I was like 15 or 16. And it used to be that it was, she was playing these like tiny, tiny rooms and it would be, you know, me and 50 other people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that last gig that I went to, it was just like a much more, you know, but part of it is just when people, get more successful or more known they're going to draw bigger crowds and it's inevitable but yeah. it was like oh this used to be yeah. my private thing and now there are other people yeah i'm sure there's probably a few people like that who have felt ownership over us slightly yeah I went nah i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> yeah um i i don't even know like i just never never really saw her again i don't know why um, yeah. but, i've actually um, seen her uh, a couple of times since then one of which hilariously i don't know if you've ever seen it but there's a video uh, of me playing overlap with her on youtube <laughs> so i went to see her at the union chapel and um and i got quite drunk and i was i was sat on the balcony uh, with a good friend of mine and she got to kind of this part in the show and it was she was playing solo it was a solo thing if you've been to Union Chapel in London before yeah yeah it's a beautiful venue so yeah it was just her solo on guitar I mean this is probably quite a good six years ago now if not more and she got to this point in the show and she was like you know has anyone kind of got any requests or anything and of course everyone started shouting out all these requests but we were sat on the balcony and we were, so we were slightly behind her so I guess all she could hear from coming behind her was me drunkenly shouting play overlap mm. and uh, to which point she kind of turned up at me and she was like what did you say Alice? and the place went quiet and I said play overlap and she was like oh man I, I haven't played that for years I, I can't remember how to play it and I said I'll play it for you <laughs> and she went are you serious and I was like yep yep I'll do it no problem and she, and she thought about it for me and then she went okay <laughs> well, you better come on down. So then everyone started cheering, and I start walking down the stairs. Declan, what have you done? What have you done? What if A, you're too drunk to play, or B, you've learnt it wrong and it's in the wrong key, or you've all these things started going into my head as I'm approaching the stage, and the guy hands me a guitar, and next thing, Arnie DeFranco stood next to me, and I put the guitar on, and lo and behold, I start playing. It's in the right key. She starts playing with me. And it just becomes this most blissful three and a half minutes that I will never forget for the rest of my life. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really very cool. Yeah, so uh, that was probably my most favorite moment of all time. Do you get um, a credit as being a member of her band now? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, at, at least I get the credit on YouTube. It will yeah. forever, <laughs> forever live. Yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah, good days, man. Yeah, that is an incredible song as well. Yeah, beautiful. What, but not, but not on Dilate, not on the album no, we're talking about. No. But I think the way she writes love songs, because uh, I'm, I'm thinking about like Untouchable Face as well. Um, that, that to me, even though it's kind of unrequited love, it's still just like there's such it's so vivid and it's so right on like that's exactly how i have felt and um her description of that is so perfect and i love the fact that she's not afraid to say fuck in her songs as well even though they're like sweet kind of folky songs that it's like that's exactly what i was just thinking there's there's such an amazing tone when somebody's playing this really light electric guitar with a bit of tremolo on it and it seems so sweet and so nice. And then she just comes out with this, you know, but fuck you and your untouchable face. Whilst musically, it still just it remains really sweet and delicate. Mm. It really hits you. Man. It's like it's I've never heard anything like it before. Yeah, yeah. And it's like you can still feel that it's not even anger. It's just like frustration that she's talking to someone who doesn't feel the same way or or is with somebody else at that time, even if they do feel the same way about her. But it's... And, and- yeah, so and delicate, com- but yeah, still really like there's this this force, just that one word, like fuck you, like oh yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's the, the, the honesty that that she shares, you know, with with anybody that listens to her music. It really gave me licenses as an artist to go. I am well within my rights to completely bear my soul and and tell people exactly how I feel, you know, albeit I want to do it in the most interesting, lyrical, poetic way of which I, I owe my entire style of songwriting to, to somebody like her who really inspired me to A, be completely authentic, B, be completely honest, and C, try and take those things and craft them in such a way that made it interesting for somebody to listen to, but, but didn't beat around the bush either. Mm. And I loved that about about her music and it's and I think it's what everyone loves about her music and I think not just her but you know a lot of there's a lot of musicians out there who 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 are honest you know authentic in their songwriting and it shocks people sometimes I think people are like my god what are you should you really be saying things like that or should you know that's you're you're being very you know sometimes when people come to my gigs and they or they'll hear certain songs and just go god it's so brave the way that you and, and it doesn't feel brave to me it just feels like I'm just telling you what I think about things. I'm not, it doesn't, it doesn't feel brave. It feels like unless we open up and share how we feel, then none of us are going to benefit. Yeah. I, I don't and know I, if, if there is some kind of like, I, I guess there are other artists who are signed to major labels that you still feel like there's honesty in their music and they have the ability to shock you or to make you feel like, you know, um, they're speaking exactly to how you've felt in the same situations that they're describing. But I think there, I've always felt like there's some added freedom with the independence that she has, that she's not, doesn't have anybody looking over her shoulder, telling her how her music should be written or telling her to adjust things so that they'll be more commercial or, uh, you know, they'll be able to market them more easily. And I'd like to think that that's at least a small contributing factor to, um, you know, the complete openness of her music. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just the, like you said, just the the, the freedom that, that that that's that that's afforded her. I can't think of a better artistic way to live your life. Like it's it's something that I that I try and aspire to 
to every day. I remember not long after that when I made my first album under the name Some Love From Carbon. I remember taking it to a few labels and one of them sitting me down and, and I played them a song and, and they were like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just too wordy. It's just too many words in it. And I thought, what? That's, I was like, that's just... It's just the point. Like that's the point of the song. Like that. This. It's just what. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I remember very early on thinking, okay, no, that actually, Deck, if you're going to get anywhere, you need to get out of these offices and you need to start trusting in what it is that you that you are creating. And so from very very early on, yeah, I, that I just decided, yeah. I I have to I have to do it. I've got to do it my own way. I've got to pay my own way. I can't have people looking over me and saying this, that, and the other. I, I I want to give myself the freedom to write the music that I want to write. Yeah, it's so uh, it's so fucked up. I I don't know. I guess in all artistic pursuits, there's you know most of the time there's some editor who's trying to make adjustments. Um, but it feels different in music to me for some reason. It's like the idea of telling people what they should or shouldn't say in a song seems i don't know very very strange like with with a book you know you have something that's this like enormous thing where you can sharpen ideas or just you know editing for grammar and punctuation and those kinds of things that it's like it has to be gone over it helps to have another set of eyes on it and music can be collaborative too but just having somebody who's like completely removed from making music who is looking at it from a financial perspective or a commercial perspective who's then saying this is the way that you should manipulate your art so that uh you know i can package it better just feels gross yeah and and so it can reach the maximum amount of people Mm -hmm. you know and and i just often think what well, what are you sacrificing there? Because mm-hmm. actually, I feel like if I look at, you know, two completely different eyes, but let's use that as an example. You know, if I think of Ari DeFranco now sat in her house in New Orleans, I could be completely wrong, but, you know, you know she, she's looking back at, on, on her career thus far. It's certainly not over yet. And, you know, she, she made all her own decisions. She stayed staunchly independent, fiercely independent. She created Righteous Babe. She's kept, she's given a platform to all these other artists who are now, you know, benefiting from, from the, from the choices that she made as, as an independent artist. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I would imagine if I was in her shoes right now, I could sit at home and be drinking of, or, you know, sat out on the porch in New Orleans with a cold beer, having a smoke thinking, I did good. Like I did, I I did good and I did what I set out to do. And I feel really happy that actually I can still go on holiday or I can go down the local shop and nine out of 10 people will still have no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. And then you look at somebody like Ed Sheeran, for example, who has, again, done has, has made the music that he wanted made. And Ed worked incredibly hard to get where he got. Without a doubt, he worked incredibly hard. You know, I toured with Ed a little bit back in the early days. Mm. And I remember thinking then like, God, this kid is—he's amazing. Like he's amazing, you know. And he—he he was doing the gigging and gigging and gigging and gigging and gigging every night in a very similar way to imagine how Ida Franco did back at you know back in the beginning. And in a lot of ways, Ed didn't need a major label because he was getting people at his shows. He was selling out his own shows like no problem. Hmm. And then he went—I think it was Atlantic or whatever—and and, and all of a sudden he just become this astronomical worldwide success. Mm-hmm. And now I imagine somebody like him sitting in his, 
you know, mansion or whatever with his pool and his studios and everything, sitting outside, having a cold beer and a cigarette going, ooh, been a bit lonely, actually. Yeah. Like, I can't even pop out to the shop because I'll just get paparazzi and everyone following me. Mm-hmm. And it, I look at it in those terms and I just think, what, is, what life would I rather lead? I know exactly which life I'd rather lead. And just... Loneliness, definitely, and isolation, but also just the weight of expectation and having this entire industry built around him now that, you know, he is, his record sales are a big chunk of his label's revenue. Yeah, Um, and and people's income, like paying their own mortgages. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, Um, I mean, that's, you're right, that's an, an enormous pressure for for a young man to deal with, mm-hmm. we're talking yeah. somebody who's still in his twenties. Yeah, like, poof, it's a lot. Yeah, and that's fair, fair play to him. He's doing he's doing incredibly well, but it, it, it does make you think when you look at it in those terms. Like, God, you know, it's a lot. Yeah, and that's again what Napoleon is about. It's like exactly. you know, the difference between someone who either wants to or just ends up getting sucked into the music industry, the record industry machine, and, you know, kind of becoming part of this thing that's bigger than themselves and that they can't really control anymore. Or someone like Ani, who's like, I want my music to be mine. And it, the, you know, I want people to listen to it. I want to have an audience, but the size of the crowd isn't really that important to me. And, you know, as long as I'm making enough money to, live and support myself i'm I'm doing yeah. okay yeah and that old adage of like you know be careful what you say to people on the way up because you might need them on the way back down which is mm-hmm. basically the whole crux of napoleon which says you know i guess you dialed my number because you thought for sure that i'd agree baby you know that i still love you but how dare you complain to me it's like it's just genius yeah 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 it's just it's so genius it's like when you were when you were going up that ladder you were racing up that ladder kicking dust in my face, just thinking, no, they're going to give me this, get this, get that, blah, 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 and then get chewed up and spat out by that machine. You fall from a very, very big height, and I think it's quite depressing, actually, when you think of the amount of artists who that's happened to over the years. There's very few people with staying power who are still going strong in the way that I think she is. I remember I spoke to somebody about Arnie DeFranco when I was kind of first starting out and people were like, well, you know, well, who do you kind of aspire to be? Like, what kind of level of, of success? And I was I, went, I was in the States, actually, and, and I said to somebody, you know what, Arnie DeFranco is, is somebody who I really look up to as, on a, on a, as, as kind of a career model, you know, and the success that she's had. And I remember they turned around to him and, and they said to me, well, I wouldn't really call Arnie DeFranco successful. <laughs> And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And I just thought, God, but that, I mean, that's the world that we live in. That is, that is, and particularly in the music industry, the music industry would look at Arnie DeFranco and say, she is not a successful artist. Right. And I just think, wow, then that's not an industry I want to be a part of. I guess, you know, it is just wildly different definitions of success. Yeah. Um, yeah. We live in a world where for a lot of people, being successful not only means having a mansion with a pool, but being so famous that you can't leave your house without people mobbing you, that that's like the thing Oof. you aspire to. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yay. Another thing about, have you, I'm assuming you've heard her play songs from this album um, when you've seen her? Yes. Yes, um, I have. Have you heard 
wildly different versions of these songs because like I, I heard Napoleon, she played it at gigs before it was on this album and it was an even more stripped down version, just like really no effect on her vocals at all, just really like raw, her, her voice completely on its own and then the guitar just barely playing like just enough to kind of have some melody underneath yeah Um, and it's still pretty close to that on the the record but it it felt a bit more produced um and yeah she's just very good at like providing a contrast between the recorded version and the live version and i think that's that's quite a skill i mean there's nothing wrong with like i I love going to concerts where artists play songs and it sounds exactly like what i've always known Um, but it is a nice surprise when you have people who can give you a little something different oh completely yeah i'm I'm a huge fan of when people do that like within reason you know yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) I went to see Lauren Hill in concert last year. I mean, thankfully she turned up about an hour and a half late. <laughs> but my God, I was like, "Woman, can you just can you just sing one of the songs like it like it is on the CD, please, <laughs> please?" Because I really like the album, and you you're just ruining it for me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it, 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 what's what's been amazing about following Lana DeFranco? Not only because I think she does it regularly with her output of music, because what it's about five or six albums, she releases like a double live album. Mm-hmm. And so you get to hear all the bands and you get to hear slightly different versions of the songs. But also because when she tours, every time I've seen her live, she has a different setup. So that first time when we saw her together back in London all those years ago, it was around the days of, oh, what was that album? Was it the reveling, reckoning kind of, yeah, that kind of t- early 2000s kind of vibe when she, she had all these, she had a big brass section. And yeah. do you remember the set? She had a huge band with her. It was yeah. really big. And even I remember feeling a bit jibbed because I was, because you'd, you'd played me so much of her music and, and it was such of the earlier stuff. And then we got there and I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> I was expecting just a woman and a guitar. Yeah, but yeah. it was still, so, you know, exciting to see her. And then the next time I saw her at Union Chapel, she was completely on her own. And then I saw her in LA two years ago, uh, downtown, and it was her and drums and double bass. So it was almost kind of like back to the, back to kind of the original setup almost. And so each time you hear it with these different sets of music, you can't, the songs can't help but take on a different, uh, a different tone and a different vibe. And yeah, yeah it's just been incredibly exciting, really exciting that, she, that she, uh, she continues to give a shit that much actually which is great yeah um i am in full agreement though about the brass band era i was (laughs) like i just i don't and again whatever she can play her music however the fuck she wants to play it but for me i was like i i don't need all these bells and whistles like near literal bells and whistles (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly she probably also thought after that album she thought fuck that i'm not talking with that many people again that cost me a fortune yeah that's that's exactly what i was thinking too it's like you have three people touring with you and no you know nothing else behind you it's not like she even has big stage effects or anything it's all very simple and and cost effective simple and cost effective simple and cost effective <laughs> that's what we like exactly yes. <laughs> oh, dear. um so i feel extremely satisfied and uh, great me too I, I, I think we should just finish on i'm just looking at the front cover of dial now and mm. i just want to allude to the fact that 
for such a long time, I didn't realise that it actually said dilate on the front cover. I thought it was just these weird drips of of white. Like, <laughs> I had, I, I just had no idea. And then it dawned on me, maybe two years later, that it actually said dilate. <laughs> so I'd just like to establish that. And also her hair looks fucking great on that photo. Yeah, the whole, the, everything she's wearing and the kind of filter on it and everything. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it is Epic phase. Nice one, Ari. Big fan. Yes, well done. So if anyone listening to this wants to find out what you're up to, how <laughs> can they do that? Uh, they can go to www.declanbennett2ns2ts.co.uk and that will take you to uh, it'll take you to my Bandcamp page actually, where you can listen to all of my music and you can see all of my latest releases and website and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that box. Wonderful! So thank you very much for talking to me. This was so much fun, um, and yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. It was awesome. Cheers. Speak to you soon. All right. Let's love. Bye bye. 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 Can we all agree that that was a barrel of fun? I think we can. Thanks, Dak. You're the best. So, recommendations, anyone? Yes, of course. Firstly, Bat for Lashes put out a new album called Lost Girls. It's dreamy. It intentionally sounds like an 80s movie soundtrack. There are vampire references in it. It's breezy and beautiful, and her voice sounds as lovely as ever, so check that out. Also, a podcast recommendation for you. The New York Times has a project called the 1619 Project that has been amazing so far, and they have a podcast tied to that project. The 1619 Project is in observance of the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery, and the project deals with the legacy of slavery in this country. The podcast is hosted by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is absolutely brilliant. The whole series is incredible, but the third episode has particular relevance to this podcast because it's about the birth of American music. Wesley Morris guests on that episode, and he talks about the influence of Black culture on modern pop music, including music made by white artists like Amy Winehouse, Annie Lennox, George Michael, but also the history of minstrelsy and how its influence can still be felt in American culture. It's so, so, so well done and interesting, and you should really give it a listen. And speaking of white people who sing (laughs) R&B, I really love Anna Wise's latest single. She's a singer who's probably most famous for winning a Grammy for her contribution to Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly album. But this song sounds really different. It's not really that R&B-ish. It's kind of like a cross between St. Vincent and, uh, I don't know, Oland. It's quirky. Ugh, that's not a very nice word, but I think it's accurate. I don't know. Anyway. It's just one song. Check it out. If you hate it, you only wasted a few minutes of your life. I think you'll like it. So, you know, whatever. It's not that big of a risk, guys. Okay? Take a chance. All right. All right. That just about wraps it up here, except for one little announcement. There won't be a new episode next week. What? Why is this happening, you say? Well, I'm going on vacation. I think that's a good excuse, don't you? And if you don't, Tough shit. It's happening anyway. But I'll be back the following week with a big episode. Huge. And that will make up for it, I promise. In the meantime, you'll have all this extra time on your hands. So why not follow me on social media at Spark Parade and then rate and review the show wherever you download or stream. 
Doesn't that sound like a fun idea? It does. All right, kids. Have a lovely week off from the sound of my voice. Be good. See you in a couple of weeks. Until then, bye. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.